And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sidney Wildsmith. The story of the birth of the Son of God. Even that can become just another story. But this universe, of which we are, this amazing microspot of life, is. And although those kinds of thoughts feel awkward to some, the truth is the truth. Today, we visit the story of the birth of our universe and ultimately of ourselves when your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. holidays have officially begun. And it's amazing that although I'm down here in sunny San Diego, sometimes now I find my thoughts drifting back to the snowy-covered fields of Minnesota with the black naked trees revealing the secrets of the woods for all to see, brittled by a bristling, crispy, cold wind from the north. Sometimes at night I drive through the early darkness into a crowded parking lot and recall getting ready to brave the frigid winds of the night in order to lean my way against the freezing air, face pelted by frozen bits of night, on my holiday quest for gifts for brothers and sisters, friends and family. And at times like this, I can recall the wonder of the season, when my brothers and I tossed tinsel to the tops of the tall green tree, weeping its evergreen tears, which filled the moments with a smell that will always mean Christmas. Thank God for the memories. It's probably just me, but so much of this life just cannot compare with those sacred rituals, all fresh and new. I wish life were as simple as it once was, but, alas, these are very serious times. The really good news is that we seem to be awakening from the mysteries of our terror-driven world to wish for something better. The mists of delusion are clearing, and there is a shift within our society to want to take charge again and steer our souls to a higher ground. And it's a good thing, because this earth and the wonders struggle too for life. This struggle to be is what has driven this universe into an ever more complex alignment of order, order against the chaos. And today, we take a giant step into the Wonder with evolution biologist and author Elizabeth Satoris as we go deep into our ancient galactic and cosmic beginnings. And just a thank you to all you listeners out there who must be sharing the good news as more and more people are listening each week to your voice of the earth, the wild side news. Keep on turning on the good news. Thanks for listening. Now, we turn our attention to this special in-depth edition of the Wild Side News as we explore the nature of nature, the truth about our ancient cosmic beginnings, with one of the world's leading writers and researchers in the field of evolution biology. Dr. Elizabeth Satoris, who has a Ph.D. in evolution biology 
as a futurist. She's an author and a speaker. Her work has appeared on NOVA. Uh, she's written for Horizon and NOVA TV, and she actually did her postgraduate work with the American Museum of Natural History in New York. I'm so envious of that. What a great place to go to school. <laughs> and uh, so your focus really is on the living systems, and you've studied this in ways that I think have great merit to our planet right now. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to put this in a framework. So if you were to say what it is that you feel that your message is, is really trying to impart to us. Well, I would say that my main message is that we can learn from nature how to get ourselves through this critical transition period uh, for our whole planet. And so I've been a student of living systems for decades, quite a few decades by now. And I find that there are things in our biological evolution that have kind of been precursors to what we're going through now in this process of globalization, which I see as more than win-lose economics, which we have to change, but more generally a process of moving us out of a hostile competition phase into a mature, cooperative, global family phase for our whole species. I'm sure some people might say that sounds a little bit airy-fairy, and yet in reality it's the hard-edged truth of our future. This is hard science, and that's what one of the things that we're going to interestingly address, and that is the role of science in getting us into this position and how science may ultimately get us out of this position. You have traced life on Earth way back to its beginnings, but I'd love to know from your scientific perspective as an evolution biologist, what it is that you've discovered? Yes, Sydney. Well, about the airy-fairy thing of relating our social process as humans to biological evolution, let me deal with that first sure. and just say uh, we are a natural species within a context of other species on what I call this living earth, and we'll get into that part later about the living earth. But I think almost anyone who... Uh, believes in evolution, we are a part of evolution. And we add something new to it with our reflective minds and our social evolution, but essentially the process is a biological evolution process that's not generally acknowledged within the neo-Darwinian framework, and I'd like to talk about why I see things a little bit different from Darwin. But at the moment, you um, basically it's that I see Darwin as having been half right, but having missed about half the picture in evolution, and that uh, has to do with the maturation into cooperation. But you asked me to go back to cosmology, so let me do that too. Um, we, of course, have separate sciences of physics and biology in our Western scientific model, and biology has always been a bit of a second-class citizen since physics has long been identified as the kind of father science, the, the, the main science. And so whatever physics says about our universe, biology has to fit itself into that model. And physics has given us a model of a non-living universe that's running down by entropy, meaning it's heading from a Big Bang to heat death in an endlessly expanding universe. Now, quite a few physicists I know um, are now working on unified field models, and most of those balance entropy with gravity, meaning balance radiation with gravity, I should say, because radiation is the force that's entropic. 
that obeys this law of entropy. And the unification problem in physics is how to unite gravity and radiation into one single model. So those people who are uniting them, in one case, um, physicist Nassim Haramein has a model where he calls gravity centropy so that we have entropy balanced by centropy. Entropy being the radiation force that's infinitely outward, and that, of course, is what we see through our telescopes, whether they're light telescopes or, or um, um, radio telescopes. It's all electromagnetic radiation. And then gravity is invisible to telescopes, but we know, because we can feel and measure it, that it's a concentrating force, an inward force. So if you think of it as radiation infinitely outward and gravity infinitely inward, um, then you see that you can have a dynamic balance between these two forces. And gravity can also, as Haramein and Rauscher, his partner is Elizabeth Rauscher in this theory, as they call it, centropy, they're talking about, uh, they're also naming it the generoactive force because by pulling things together, you permit radiation to expand. The contraction and the expansion are kind of like um, anabolism and catabolism in physiology. You have one force building things up, the other one breaking them down and recycling them. So it's that kind of a balanced cosmology that gets us out of the socially depressing idea that everything is running down and you have to get what you can while you can which is what we got from this one-way entropic universe, um, philosophies such as existentialism, the purposelessness of the universe, the non-living universe running down, has, has just not been uh, very good for us. Now, if it were true, then we'd have to accept that maybe it's not good for us. But if it turns out that this conception of the universe does not fit the current data as well as alternative conceptions, then we have to rethink it all. What I want to do is project this into the life systems itself and the fact that we see this as well in the living systems, the male, the female, life and death, but in particular this coming together of, well, whatever these are. They're not opposites. Male and female are not opposite. They're, they're cooperating two sides of a whole. Yes, it's a duality that mm -hmm. belongs together. Mm -hmm. The fact that we do have, for example, male-female as the basis of so much of recreation, perhaps the roots of that go way back into this very primordial dynamic of our universe itself. For myself, my quest has been to try to really try to understand life from the perspective of the, of the roots of life, uh, which is this cosmological evolution. What I'm trying to get to is, is the way in which these uh, forces now are manifesting in literally the living systems to show a continuity, to, right. to suggest that the, the forces of the universe itself and our own existence are intimately related, intimately related. Mm -hmm. And we can literally draw direct logical correlations, potentially, mm -hmm. scientifically, between our existence and life and these, these manifestations of life and as well the cosmological principles of expansion and contraction of radiation and gravity and that it, it's real it, to me it gives me purpose to realize that what I am experiencing as a human for example on the planet is really a manifestation of the truth of our universe it's my own concept of a spiritual nature 
Yes, I would say so. And the, the, the problem for me with the Western scientific model is that before it ever does any research to prove anything, it has concepts about what kind of a universe we live in. And it started out with this unquestioned uh, assumption that we live in a non-living universe. Now, interestingly, all the other cultures of our world have seen it as a living universe. The concept of a non-living universe goes back perhaps to the ancient Greeks in our European heritage because there was that model of spheres within spheres uh, with holes in the spheres through which an external light shone and that was the stars. So you can trace that idea of, of a non-living universe back that far. But uh, some people confuse the idea of a non-living and a dead universe, but they're quite different because something dead was once alive, and non-living means it never was alive, which is the physics conception of our universe. Now, because other sciences in the world, like the Arabic sciences and the Vedic science and indigenous sciences and others, did not have this concept of a non-living universe, I also decided to question it. And I ended up making a 180-degree turn, which I find many of my fellow scientists have made now, from believing that consciousness is a late emergent product of material evolution in a non-living universe to the concept of consciousness being the very source of the material universe and everything in it. That's the Vedic or Hindu, ancient Hindu view. And they did, you know, thousands of years of, of research on uh, consciousness and things like that. This was not a conclusion arrived at lightly. And the East, of course, spends as much time investigating mind internally as we in the Western science traditions spend investigating the externals, the things that are our are, are projected universe or our outer reality, if you like. And when you put East and West together, then just as, as entropy and centropy, you have a balanced view of a science. And I've come to feel that whenever you see a one-way force in nature, something's wrong, look for its partner. Because uh, the original unity of consciousness that field we can call God or Brahman or whatever in our traditions, that has to create dualities out of its unity in order to make worlds. Well, that's a few billion years worth of history. When we return, we continue to explore the new scientific paradigm that brings life to the forefront of how we think. When we return with your voice of the earth here on the Wild Side News.
Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. Ever wonder what this thin layer of life is which grips the planet, rarely rising more than 10 feet, most confined to a few inches from the surface, some life reaching us at its grandest a mere 300 feet off the surface of the Earth? It's a thin line we live in, and it got here somehow. It's a big debate, no doubt, even as we speak. And science seems to be central to the question and the controversy, and perhaps even the answer. When we return, we move along ahead a few billion years more and discover the shape of life in the universe. This journey continues when we return here on the Wild Side News. Galileo had looked at everything differently. Would we be in the fix we are today? We continue our discussion with evolutionary biologist Dr. Elizabeth Satoris, who hand carries us farther into the mystery. It's interesting, the Eastern and Western, that is part of the, the challenge these days because the Eastern typically uh, really has a focus on the one. The, the oneness. Oftentimes, I mean, if people, mm-hmm. for example, are meditating, they're thinking of oneness, uh, that the word om is a process of trying to resonate with the one. And the Western tradition is one about me and individuation. And that, that, so those two are, all by themselves, sort of, they're different different forms of being human, different, yeah. different approaches and views. But this is also part of our challenge right now, is trying to figure out how it is that we, because the West celebrates me. Yes. Yeah. And the East, they focus on the oneness. Yes. Uh, how do we, how do we yeah, bring this together? Rather than on the individuation. We, we exactly. in the West have taken the concept of, of the individual uh, pretty far. And that's been an important process. In my universe, anything that can happen will happen. And somebody somewhere had to try out what it would be like to pretend you were separate from that oneness. And, and forgot, you know, that you were part of it, and how would that play out in society? And that's really what we've done. And now we find that there's this hunger for reintegrating the two paths of knowledge again to get a more complete view of things. You made a, a point during your discussion that I found so so enlightening, and that was the fact that the, the, the analogy that you draw is that Galileo had the opportunity to look both through a telescope and a microscope. Mm-hmm. And I just think this is so, <laughs> I love this. And somehow the the power of the celestial story, the astronomical vision of the world, overpowered what he could have focused on had he decided that the microscopic or the yes. living uh, was the main theme. Expand on that a little bit. Well, um, yes. If it, see, the heavens in Galileo's time had already been identified as celestial mechanics, and, uh, and therefore it, it was uh, compatible with this non-living universe story. 
And what I was saying was if he had looked through those newfangled lenses of his day inverted to make a microscope, he would have seen all those squiggly little things everybody has witnessed in that drop of pond water experiment or hay infusion experiment that you generally do in junior high school. And and that was a miraculous world to study just and still is. That micro world is, is even more interesting now than it was then. And uh, and we're learning more about its unbelievable complexity. So uh, it might have inspired Galileo to think more in terms of a universe of life, a living universe. That was what I had in mind there. Well, and think about the changes. Had that had that been the main thrust of science, because mm-hmm. both of these are science, then physics would have had to fit itself into the biology model, and and that's exactly where I've come. Is that if instead of uh, if you can make the unproven assumption that this is a non-living universe, and then do research within that framework and see how far you get, you can just as validly make the fundamental assumption and make it explicitly so that you're not not hiding this, that you're working with a living universe, one that starts in consciousness, something none of us humans have ever been out of. So in some sense, it must be fundamental in our models. And then uh, go from there and see how do we reinterpret the data of all the research of science Within that framework, does it lead to better explanations of who we are and where we're headed? And I find that, uh, in my experience, it does work better to make that assumption. If we had spent the last yeah. 2,000 years focused from that perspective, what a different world the West would... Yes, the problem with Western science is that uh, you go to graduate school and you learn these unproven assumptions, these fundamentals in the, in the model... But then people forget, and they assume that, of course, this is a non-living universe. That's just the way things are. They don't realize that that is a belief that was set at the base of science. And uh, let me just say that, you know, Descartes, who is one of the founding fathers of science, had a model of the universe in which God was the grand engineer who invented the machinery of nature. And then he put a piece of God mind into man, his favorite robot, so that man too could create machinery. Now, that was a logically complete system because machinery, if you look in a dictionary, requires an inventor. But scientists eventually decided that they had no need for this hypothesis of God and then continued to explain nature as machinery, which became completely illogical because you can't have in machinery without an inventor, without any purpose. And science claims that there's no purpose and no inventor in for the machinery of nature. So that's actually an illogical position. As a scientist, I'm trained as a biologist. I have had experiences that I that lead me to understand, for example, that I can communicate with animals, that animals have a, a consciousness, they have an awareness, they have feelings, that they're way more complex than science allows us to even think. I mean, for example, uh, you know, I think the first rule, the first commandment of, of science is thou shalt not anthropomorphize. anthropomorphize. Yeah. Now, but interestingly, you are expected to mechanomorphize. <laughs> In other words, you have to see 
nature as mechanics in graduate school as a biologist, right? Exactly. And I used to say, hey, mechanomorphism is second-hand anthropomorphism. (laughs) Why not at least go directly to... um, I read a wonderful essay once with the statement in it that said it takes a living system to know a living system. So anthropomorphizing may not be all bad if you want to identify with life. Let's have a little bit of fun for um, a moment here, and now let's go through the other system because you have also uh, really tracked the, the miraculous universe of the microscopic, and you're able to describe that miraculous nature in ways that I think are so profound. Uh, share some of that, the concept of what just what's involved in even one living cell and how that cell then starts to relate to a more holistic vision of life and the earth and, uh, and our place in that. Yes, well, if I uh, go for a minute back to the idea of, of the balance between entropy and centropy or syntropy biologically, a planet's surface is really, as the ancients intuited, halfway between the microcosm and the macrocosm. That's now measurable. That's an established uh, fact of sci- in science. And the way I see it, the entire universe is in the process of creating living systems at all levels from particles and atoms at the small size level to uh, super clusters of galaxies at the larger level up to the universe. And um, with the, with the entropy-centropy um, concept, you find that actually there are only two cosmic forces because the strong and weak nuclear forces are accounted for mathematically by gravity at the level of the atom, and there's no need for for dark matter or energy to be postulated. Again, this is the theory of Nassim Haramein and Elizabeth Rauscher, whom perhaps you'll be able to interview sometime. Great. And um, in that system, I use the definition of life, which we've had now for about 30 years, from two Chilean-born biologists, named Umberto Maturana and Francisco Varela. They were at MIT and the University of Paris, respectively. And that life definition is autopoiesis. It's the only core definition of life in biology. Usually people are just taught lists of attributes of living systems. Now, that definition is autopoiesis is a Greek word meaning self-creation. And the definition of life, then, is any living entity is one that continually creates and maintains itself in an environment of some kind. So um, I thought about what would be the simplest thing that continually creates itself in relation to its environment, and I came up with a whirlpool, because a whirlpool in a river keeps bringing new matter energy, the water the flowing water into itself and lets that water out through the bottom, the tip of the vortex, and holds its form through that continual exchange of matter, which is exactly what you and I do as physical bodies. We take in food, water, and air. We continually recreate ourselves from the particle and atom level up to the molecular and cell level. And we hold that form recognizably as we do so. So you see a connection between those two forms. Also, if you take the bottom of a vortex and connect it back to the top and then flip it around into three dimensions, 
you get a donut shape or a toroid. In mathematics, it's called a torus, a toroidal form. So a toroidal form is a vortex connected at top and bottom so that it can independently exist in space. Now, you and I are both toroids because we have one hole starting with our mouths that goes right through the middle of us. And if you know anything about the math called topology, you'll know immediately that that means our whole body is equivalent topologically to a donut-shaped torus. So all this led me to think perhaps in this universe where you have uh, infinitely outward entropy and infinitely inward centropy, halfway between the microcosm and the macrocosm on planets, you will find the, the forces of creation moving both upward and downward colliding at this mid-level of the universe and they're forming the extra complexity we know as biological life. Mm. So this is my theory that biological entities are nothing more nor less than a special case of the self-creation of living systems at all levels of our universe. That was a bit long, but I had to do that to, to get this out. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. As I'm sure everybody is aware, this is an amazing discussion with an amazing person. I wish that we could go on for about four hours. We'll continue, but there's so much to this. And, and by the way, um, at this point, why don't you go ahead and give a website where people can learn more about your work, and okay. then we'll continue. I have two websites. One is www.saturis.com, and that's spelled S-A-H-T-O-U-R-I-S, saturis.com. And that's kind of a business brochure with some links to articles. But most of my writings are on another website, which is www.radical, like radical with a T, R-A-T-I-C-A-L, dot org slash lifeweb, L-I-F-E-W-E-B. And, of course, those links are on the, on the website. Yes, and mm -hmm. there's a whole copy of my book, Earth Dance, at that latter website, as well as about... 20 or 30 articles. They're all free for the download. Yes, which is a, a terrific gift to anyone who's listening. You can go there and literally download a 232-page book, Earth Dance, that Elizabeth Satoris has, has written, and it's yours. It's a gift, so that's, it is truly a gift. Following on some of this concept, and one of the things that I've always, always been intrigued with as well, and I love the concepts of spirals, people talk about waves, for example, mm -hmm. and um, they draw them on a on a chalkboard, these undulating lines. But from my perspective, a wave really is a, is a cross-section of a spiral, that if mm -hmm. you were to take a spiral and uh, do a cross-section, that's what you'd see. And suddenly when you start to see waves or interpret them as spirals, then all of a sudden everything starts to make sense. Yeah. When we talk about waves, because then they have energy, they have direction, they have form, they have uh, power and, and, and can take uh, li literally form and dimension. That manifestation in nature itself, for example, if we look at the DNA, just as one prime example of a couple of intertwining spirals that counter-reflect one another in many wonderful ways, that also is a manifestation of these of the, the the duality of our nature in form, and I want to leave that to something else. But I'd just be curious of your comments about even DNA and its its place in this story. Well, I certainly agree with you that the spiraling form, you know, that that's the basic wave nature of the universe. If you 
think uh, about, you know, our planet, it's not really rotating around the sun in circles because the sun is moving in spirals uh, around in the galaxy and then our Earth is following it around. So if you traced out the actual path of our Earth, it would be very complex spirals within spirals within spirals. Exactly right, yeah. Depending on whether you're looking at the Earth or the sun or the galaxy, uh, all of which are linked. You know the old uh, concept of it's turtles all the way down in the in the creation story of the Indians who said the earth is is on a turtle's back and where is the turtle it's on another turtle's back right well spirals all the way down and all the way up in our universe uh one of the things i'm intrigued with when you talk about this concept it's almost as if consciousness somehow is interwoven in this entire matrix well, I think consciousness is the matrix. <laughs> well, it, it, this is uh, we're, we're making the same point. Yeah. One of the things that I find so amazing in terms of the, the miraculous nature of, of life itself, and that is that no matter how complex our life becomes, somehow within this ancient DNA that was formed, you know, the basis of, of a human existence was mm-hmm. formed millions of years ago. Yes. So, and and we, we see some sort of evolutionary process. Billions, actually. Well, I'm, I'm trying to be, trying <laughs> to be uh, conservative, okay? <laughs> but you're right. That within that DNA matrix was the power to envision beyond reality. That's one of the things that I just find is extraordinary, that there was some sort of survival advantage some selective force for life that could literally see things that weren't. We can we look at our world today, and we're still inventing new new concepts, new things, new ideas. Even as we're talking, we're creating things that never existed before, yes. and that built into our DNA as some sort of ancient system of survival was this capacity to to see or envision or visualize answers to 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 questions that uh, were beyond our current realms. I'm um, not exactly clear on how to talk about that in DNA uh, separate from the proteins. Once again, we have a duality in nature. Um, DNA by itself can't do anything. It's a crystalline substance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, and proteins are uh, what unlock DNA as needed. So I've come to see DNA, which is housed in the nucleus of each of our hundred billion cells, as the library of information uh, that proteins can draw on in building living systems. And it still isn't known how much of what goes on in our biology is due to the information in the DNA and what's due to the intelligence in the the protein itself. So it's very hard to separate those two. But together, they certainly are uh, building living entities which have a new kind of mind in evolution, this self-reflexive mind that, uh, for example, invents a linear time sequence out of a nonlinear reality so that we can function with memory of past and projection into future. And that's a, that's a wonderful new experiment on the part of nature, apparently. And we don't quite know what the results of that experiment are going to be. For example, I assumed because we can project into the future that 
we would be able to foresee where we're headed in the evolutionary trajectory and avoid some disasters, while the other species in nature have generally been pushed to evolve by disaster. But I have to say, Sydney, that the older I get and the more experience I have of my own species, the more it looks to me like we are being pushed by the crises we invent, just as other species have been pushed into evolution by crises. I know. I think this would be a great point to take a break. Mm -hmm. And when we come back, I'd like to, to now explore how it is that these principles may be able to help us resolve our future in a better, more holistic and sustainable way. Okay. So we are the stuff of the universe, and our thoughts and visions are like the movie screens of God, or perhaps they are just randomized ramblings of the atoms which interpenetrate them all. We interpenetrate our place on this earth and the cosmic dance, and what this may all mean to our future as oil prices hold guns to our dreams, and changes wrought by our great science and intellect sell a division of an endless carefree summer and beyond when we return here on the Wild Side News. Wildside News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. We're running out of time to get this all figured out, both on today's show and according to some, in our global dream of a world economy in exchange and goods and stuff unlimited. So when we return, we move quickly into the future and find out what nature tells us about life on Earth. Wait, nature is life on Earth, and, well, we are nature as well. Maybe it's time we realign our visions of what we are and where we are in our own evolution of existence. So hang on as we continue with your Voice of the Earth here on the Wild Side News. Can nature reach up and talk to us? Or do we reach inward to talk with our nature? We try to find out as we continue our discussions with Dr. Elizabeth Satoris. You know, what I have discovered in looking at evolution and in questioning the Darwinian theory, where is it right, where does it not go far enough, I came to two concepts that really helped me to understand the evolutionary process. One of them is a very simple concept that comes from Arthur Kustler, the philosopher, and for those listeners who have read Ken Wilber, you'll know that he also adopted this idea of holons and holarchy, where a holon is just any living entity, and holarchy is that living entity's embeddedness within other levels. For example, the holarchy of your body would be 
uh, molecules within cells, within organs, within organ systems, within the whole body, or an individual within a family, within a community, within an ecosystem, within a nation, within a world. This is a very important and very useful concept that living systems are always embedded within other living systems. So let's think holons and holarchy. And then the other concept is one of a maturation cycle in evolution, which is kind of like the maturation cycle that we go through as individuals, where we first, uh, there's a unity of mother and baby, and then you individuate from the mother, and you go through childhood and into a kind of feisty, competitive adolescence, and eventually we learn to cooperate with each other as mature adults, at least we hope so, and uh, and that makes life work for us as social creatures. Now, the way I see this in nature is that young, immature species are the kind of species ecologists say populate type 1 ecosystems. They take as much territory as they can get, they reproduce as fast as possible, and therefore use up as many resources as possible to establish and perpetuate themselves. They're very competitive in this process if they meet other species. Now, that's the part Darwin told us about. However, if they don't kill each other off at that stage, I believe they go on into a mature cooperative phase, which is what ecologists will tell you the species are like in a type 3 ecosystem. They ensure the life of other species by contributing something to them, they're very cooperative in their sharing of resources and territory. These are ecosystems like rainforests and prairies, very well-evolved ecosystems. Now, interestingly, while ecologists talk about these type 1 and type 3 ecosystems, and they'll tell you type 2s are transitional with perhaps some of each of those kinds of species in them, they do not see this as a maturation cycle. But I asked myself, where do those cooperative species come from? They didn't seem to be there to start with. There's something about these two ways of behaving that we humans can anthropomorphize about and identify as being our own phases of maturation. And when you see things that way, you understand why in nature you can point to both cooperation and competition and see them in a unified theory. You know, Darwin knew there was cooperation going on in nature, but the unification theory is seeing it as a maturation cycle. Now, once you see that, then you can go back through evolution and say, okay, how did this play itself out in some of the important evolutionary events? And to me, the most important one is the invention of the nucleated cell. There are only two kinds of cells on this planet. There are bacterial cells, which occupied the Earth for half of its life with no other kind of cell around. And then somewhere around the middle of, of Earth's life, the bacteria formed nucleated cells, thousands of times bigger than bacteria, as colonies. Now, originally, in their hostile competitive mode, the bacteria were very like us humans in colonizing each other, different kinds of bacteria. 
so that high-tech fast bacteria would drill into low-tech um, sluggish bacteria and literally consume their molecules from the inside in a very colonial kind of process. But somewhere along the way, the bacteria which had diversified into a number of different lifestyles discovered that feeding each other was economically more efficient and better for everybody concerned than the hostile competition. And so they formed huge communities and each gave up some of their DNA to this central library I call the nucleus. And we had a second kind of cell on the planet, a nucleated cell. And everything else that evolved after that is made of these nucleated cells. It never had to be redesigned again after that invention. So there was the maturation process. You had the bacteria individuating from a uniform Earth's crust, and then you had them going through the juvenile phase of the, of the competition that got pretty hostile sometimes, and they developed a lot of technologies in the process, including things we've invented. I call their invention of the, the first World Wide Web their exchange of DNA among each other. And to this day, all bacteria can trade DNA with each other on this planet. And they invented photosynthesis, meaning they harnessed solar energy when they had eaten up all the free food. They harnessed solar energy and made their own food out of what was left, which was minerals, sunlight, and water. And then they they um, went on to, to invent nuclear piles, probably to keep warm, and they invented the electric motor, which is of great interest now to the nanotechnologists. That's what made some of them high-tech bacteria. So it's, it's just fascinating to see how much we are repeating things that were learned at the micro level about 2 billion years ago. And that's it now. We've got the uh, concept of holarchy and the concept of the maturation cycle. And then there's something else very interesting about that. Uh, when you put those two concepts together, you see something very interesting. Think of the holarchy of your body, which I described as cells within organs, within organ systems, within the whole body. And now imagine that that cycle is being continually played out in the eternal now because Every level of holarchy in your body has to be able to express its self-interest in order to function. And that means that there are some conflicts that develop at, among the different levels so that you have to have constant negotiations going on between, say, an organ and its component cells so that the organ can meet its self-interest and the individual cells can meet their self-interest. So that dynamic goes on and pushes cooperation. Somehow the system knows that everything in it has to be healthy for the system as a whole to be healthy. And that body wisdom, as it used to be called by physiologists, is something we need in the holarchy that goes through individual, family, community, ecosystem, world. Because it immediately tells you that your world economy can only be healthy if what's at the top, which is presently the World Trade Organization, recognizes the need to negotiate with and ensure the self-interest of every local 
economy in that system. Do you see how the two things connect together? Absolutely right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So we, we have tools with this maturation cycle and, and the concept of holarchy to see exactly what works well in our world and what doesn't. This kind of comes back to that east-west duality in the sense that what we're witnessing here, because no one talks about an easternization process in terms of globalization, they talk about a westernization process, which is actually sort of taking this concept of individualistic capitalism uh, out to, uh, uh, to, to the point where virtually anybody who has the right, enough uh, money and and power is able to dominate and control and take from other systems yeah. and this is the beginning of what you're talking about in terms of how do, how do we then apply a, a more uh, uh, equitable, equitable. <laughs> exactly yeah. bingo yeah we're thinking alike here yeah go ahead, um, go ahead well and, and, you know that the the Soviet East tried to build a system on sacrificing individual interest to community self interest or community interest. And the West was doing the opposite. It was sacrificing community to individual interest. So they both had half a system. The Soviet Union collapsed because it wasn't meeting self-interest, and human beings don't function very well if they can't meet their self-interest any more than the cells within them could function if they couldn't meet their self-interest. But you also get a system into trouble if you're sacrificing community self-interest. That would be... Like in the body, it's like a cancer where the individual cells meet their self-interest but do not any longer negotiate with the other levels of holarchy and therefore uh, care only about their self-interest and not about the self-interest of the, of the organ systems or the body. Mm. And so that's a dead end, too. Life stops at that point. Life stops at or that point. Or it gets point. very, you, you very miserable. If you destroy your own uh, ecosystem, then you can't live. If you just, if the cells destroy their body, then they can't live. Well, you, you've, go ahead. Yeah. I was just saying that, that if we relate this to economics, it all becomes very clear that just as in a rainforest, species have discovered the cost-effectiveness of ensuring the life of their fellow species, think of our world and how much better we would get along if we recognized that a tiny fraction of the Pentagon budget spent on developing those enemy countries would make friends of those people and give us markets. Yes. You know, it, it's just, uh, to me, an insanity that you would spend huge amounts of wealth on destroying other, uh, other cultures, other countries, than to make friends of them by developing them, which is what we're in the process of learning now. There's so many ways in which nature can serve as a guide. For example, I like to think oftentimes about a forest and the fact that in a forest there are the grand trees, the grand, grand old large trees that mm -hmm. live and tower and dominate. But when they die, they fall, and then all that they were is redistributed back into that community. And without, without that system, um, in other words, if a tree, if all trees that grew were to grow up and then be turn into stone, pretty soon there would be no more forest. Mm -hmm. So, again, a, a, a very simple concept that perhaps, I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of free associating here, but perhaps one of the, the unnatural systems is the accumulation of wealth in ever more smaller groups of people, that that could be yeah. something that just plain does not serve this living system very well. 
No, it doesn't. And, of course, uh, Arnold Toynbee, who investigated the demise of 23 previous civilizations, uh, found two common features in that demise, one of which was the extreme concentration of wealth, and the other was a failure to change when change was really called for, you know, rigidity in societies. What I like to say about the, the distribution of wealth is that the economics we're playing out in the world today is really like a monopoly game. A monopoly game is about concentrating wealth in the hands of, of one of the players, right? And when you finish playing Monopoly, what do you do? You either redistribute the wealth or you go play something else. And I suggest we play something else in our world Monopoly game. We just have a couple of minutes left. What are some of the games that you, you see as, as new games that may work? Well, it's really, if you're thinking game theory, about moving to win-win games rather than win-lose games. And there are ways for everybody to win, and we can see that from this history of evolution. If we update the Darwinian theory to uh, to seeing the, the way species in nature learn to cooperate with each other in win-win situations, that's all we need to know to see how to build global family in our world. Well... We could carry this conversation. We've barely touched the surface, but Elizabeth Satoris has many things to do. And uh, I want to thank you so much, Elizabeth, for, for being uh, adding your voice to the Wild Side News. And uh, I look forward to um, communicating with you and keeping in touch. You're more than welcome, Sydney. Why don't you go ahead and give your website one more time? And, and also, just uh, what, what are your. Briefly, what are your plans into the future? Where might people be able to find you, and what are some of your dreams? Okay. Well, I'm traveling around the world a lot, and I consult with some companies, and I teach in a sustainable business MBA program that people can find information about at the website of the Bainbridge Graduate Institute. If you just Google that, you'll find it. And my websites, again, are satourist.com, S-A-H-T-O-U-R-I-S, Dot com and radical r-a-t-i-c-a-l dot org slash life web so i'm continuing to write to lecture around the world to consult with businesses that want to become more like living systems and uh, live in southern california and um, i'm having a wonderful life thank you so much for sharing all that you are with uh with my people and, and the world thank you sydney so now you have a clear signal to put nature first, to attune yourself to your own observations of your world, your feelings, your nature, and the grand and amazing moment we share on our swirling, swirling little Earth. By the time we meet again, little planet Earth will have spun itself into circles seven times, which is about halfway through its annual journey around the sun, which too is swirling in a finger of the Milky Way, out amongst the family of galaxies that make up our little neighborhood in the hundreds of billions of galaxies that we use to imagine a limit that is limitless, or perhaps not, then will we ever know really what this is all about. Now, go on out and live. This is Sidney Wildsmith, your host and producer of the Wild Side News, wishing you all a great helping of life until we meet again next Thursday or anytime on the archives on your voice of the earth the wild side news